The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. I remember when I moved to seminary. That was the first time I ever lived away from home. I moved to Fort Worth, Texas because I lived at home during college. And um, I remember getting there. And when you get there, life is different because I didn't have any family. I didn't have any friends, nobody that I knew at all. I was literally 10 hours away from home and by myself. And I remember the things that you begin to learn that you took for granted um, when you don't have them anymore. And I remember one time calling my mom and telling her um, that in the move that my um, laundry hamper had broken. And she was like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, used to when I put the clothes in there, they showed up in my drawer, like folded and washed. And I said, this thing is broken. That's like, they just piles up and overflows. I don't know if it needs new batteries or what it needs. But um, of course I was joking, but that's the kind of thing. I, I'd never washed my own clothes really. And I didn't know all those rules about reds and whites and not hot and new stuff. And, and so you learn it because you learn things out of necessity, right? When you get put in situations where you have to learn something, you adapt. Um, when you become passionate about something, when there are consequences to whatever it is that you're doing, you learn to have a passion for whatever it is that you're doing. And so that's kind of what Jesus is going to be talking about here in this passage when he talks about our relationship with God and our will or the thing that we live for. And ultimately at the root of this is our salvation. We've been looking at the events of chapter seven here in the gospel of John for several weeks now. And we've been looking at it because chapter seven is a very long chapter to start with. But number two to that is there's so much in there that it's almost like you, you, you can't slow down enough, but we can't spend, you know, a couple years in chapter seven. So we have to kind of keep moving through it. But I think that you've seen as we've methodically worked through it, all of this truth that John has been bringing our eyes to. He's very intentional on how he's laid out his whole gospel, especially here in chapter seven. And what you find is when you pay attention to it, you see his intentions and how clear they are. And his intention is to show us how Jesus specifically here in chapter seven, is the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, last Sunday, we started this passage where Jesus is talking about the Feast of Tabernacles, that they're going up to this feast, and his brothers wanted him to come up there and, and show everyone his power so that they would know who he was. And um, he's like, I, that's not what I'm about. You guys going up there, I, I'm not going to this feast. Of course, he goes up anyway later. And so we're picking up with where we left off last week. And um, one of the things that's interesting about that is last Sunday at sundown, the Feast of Tabernacles literally started on, on this calendar. So I thought it's funny that we ended up in chapter 7 at the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles, however many years removed from when it actually started happening that day. And Feast of Tabernacles is really central to chapter 7 because he wants us to understand not just that this was a timestamp of when it was happening, but what the Feast of Tabernacles is all about. So we spent some time talking about that. Um, it's a very festive time. It was uh, the celebration of the harvest of um, the fruit and the various nuts that grow in that area. So it's not like the wheat or the barley. This is like the hearty kind of stuff that you would bring in. And so this was a time kind of like our fall festivals where people would set up the booths reminding them of when they were in the wilderness. And not only did they live in a tent, but let's not forget that God came down and lived in a tent with them. And it was called the wilderness tabernacle. And literally the presence of God dwelt in that place. So it was a reminder of them when God came down. 
Well, here you have Jesus, who is God, who has come down to earth. And so he's watching this, and he's watching incognito, because as he sent everyone else up, he stayed behind, but then he quickly went. And so he's watching these things by himself. He has not revealed himself yet, but in our passage today, we see that he does reveal himself. He shows up. Now, remember, Jesus' brothers wanted him to go up to this feast and prove to everybody that he was who he said he was. Now, ultimately, they didn't believe. They were kind of calling his bluff on it, like, you're not going to do this. Or either they really believed that he was going to do it and he refused to do it, they lost faith in him. They didn't believe. Either way, the scripture tells us that even his brothers did not believe. So Jesus was waiting for the opportune time. He was not going to be coerced into going up there. He's not going to be coerced into doing anything. We talked about how there, there is this picture of over and over again, people want Jesus to do things, but Jesus will constantly fade back into the background because he wasn't there to prove to everyone that he was the Messiah through the miraculous. He was there to prove that he was Messiah through one sign and one sign only. And that was a sign of Jonah, that he would go into the belly of the earth for three days and that he would come forth in resurrection. That was the sign that he was giving. Now, all of these other miracles were to fulfill what the Old Testament said the Messiah was going to do when he came. But even these miracles that he's performed to this point were all happening kind of behind the scenes. Even the miracle of the bread you know, you think that this is passing the bread down and, and they ended up with a whole bunch of pieces left over, but it's not like Jesus waved, you know, a Harry Potter wand and, you know, just a whole bunch of loaves of bread just showed up there. It was not something that was obvious in the moment, but they realized it later on. And that's typical of all the miracles that John keeps choosing to use throughout his gospel to show that Jesus wasn't there about him to bring attention to himself. Matter of fact, you always see him working in the shadows. You see him drifting into the crowd there at the, the pool of Bethesda when he heals the man who had been crippled for that long period of time there, 38 years. So Jesus' brothers want him to go up. Jesus says, no, he wants to go up undetected. Now, during this very festive Feast of Tabernacles, they had different things that they would do throughout the week. One of them is called the water libation ceremony. Now, this was actually done every single day during the Feast of Tabernacles. All the people would come together and they would have the ethrog and the lulav, and that was like a citrus, and it was like these three branches from three different kinds of trees. They would bind those together and they would wave it. And it was kind of like a small hand broom. And you ever had one of those and you swish it around, it makes that noise. Well, um, historians tell us that when the Jews celebrated this, that literally a huge crowd would meet at the Temple Mount and they would proceed in this parade fashion down to the Pool of Siloam. Leading this parade is a priest who had a golden pitcher, in other words, a pitcher that could hold water. And he would march in front of them. When they got to the Pool of Siloam, they would dip this golden pitcher in there, get the water, they would read a passage from Isaiah, and then they would begin the ceremony back. And once they got there, the priests would surround the altar in the temple, and they would pour this water on top of the fires of where they would have the burnt offerings. And of course, this is a picture because tabernacles is a picture of the kingdom of God to come. It was also this belief of water and the washing of sins, and then the altar that demands a sacrifice that one day God was going to take care of the, the altar with the forgiveness and the washing of sins with the water. And one day the water would be so great that the fires would be put out and they wouldn't be needed anymore. That was a picture, a foreshadowing of what they believe was to come. 
Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus comes up during this feast, and during this water libation ceremony, which is very powerful. They even say in Scripture, it talks about how they walk in in sequence with each other during this water libation ceremony. And when they would walk, other historians tell us that they would walk in a certain fashion, and they would make this sound like you could hear them, thump, thump. And then every time they would step, they would wave also the things that they had in their hand. Of course, they would hold the citrus up and they would wave the, the little bands of, of the, the stems and the, and the limbs and they would make this swooshing sound. And you think about however many people were there doing this in sequence, you would hear boom, 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 and they literally said that from the Pool of Siloam, as soon as they started at the Temple Mount, you could hear them because they're all in sequence. And as they got closer and closer, it would get louder and louder and louder. And then finally they would get there, everything would get quiet. The priest would get the water and then listen to the passage that he would read. Traditionally, Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. Listen to what they read every Feast of Tabernacles. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day... Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great, what does it say? In your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Little did they know that during this Feast of Tabernacles, was the fulfillment of this passage that they had read for millennia. During this one, literally, the Holy One of Israel was in their midst. And what John wants us to know is they didn't even know it. They didn't recognize him. They didn't recognize him for who he was. And so John wants to draw our attention to that. Now let's begin in verse 14 and see how this passage develops. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. So notice that it says that Jesus went up into the temple, that he didn't go up into Jerusalem. Jesus has been there the entire time. He's been there from the beginning of the week. But in the middle of the week, he literally goes up to the temple and he begins teaching. So what John is highlighting here is the emergence of Jesus in this story. He most likely has been observing the activities of the Feast of Tabernacles, um, probably reveling in what they represent and knowing that God was fulfilling those things. And that was his purpose in life was to come and to fulfill all these promises that these feasts represent. And one of the most important things to notice is this, that when you see Jesus emerge during the Feast of Tabernacles, you literally have, what does John call him in the very beginning? In the beginning was the... And the word was with God and the word was God. Now, when he shows up in the feast, the word shows up teaching the word. Okay. So that's a big theme in the book of John. And so that's something that immediately should catch our attention. Now, understand that the temple was not a place for just anybody to come and start teaching. It was reserved for only the most learned, only the most trusted, only the most respected of teachers. They wouldn't just let anybody come up there. It wasn't like a free speech zone that we have in some of these colleges where anybody can come up there and say what they want. No, it was only certain people, and you didn't just come up there and just start talking or teaching anything you wanted. So you can tell that what Jesus did here upset the religious leaders. We see that as it develops in this text. Now, the temple is about as public of a place as you can do this, especially during the Feast of Tabernacles, which in that day and time was called the Great Feast. 
because so many people came in. So you can imagine Jesus talking and teaching in the middle of the temple is not with like this little group of 40 people sitting there. You're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people within earshot of him. And as they begin to listen to him and being mesmerized with how he knows these things, more and more of a crowd are being drawn. Do you think that many people stop to listen to the Pharisees when they teach? No, they do not. Okay, it's like me and Kyle. You know, Kyle teaches and nobody really wants. I, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but the, the point was, don't you know their jealousy was building? Don't you know they were sitting there going, why are so many people listening to him? He's leading them astray. He's not teaching the truth, but yet the people are saying, how in the world does this guy know these things? I mean, he hasn't gone through the Jewish system. That's what the passage leads us to there. So the people are amazed at his teaching. Now, listen, what they're amazed with is his content, not his delivery, but his content. He's saying things that they've never heard before. He's saying things that from their perspective, only someone who's been educated, only someone who's been taught by another rabbi would know these things. They don't understand how in the world he knows what he knows. And we see this emergence of the differing opinions begin to show. And by the end of this passage, you see these polar opposites that begin to develop. The people were impressed with Jesus' teaching. We see that at the end of this chapter, chapter in verses 40 through 52, the people are enamored with it. I think it's amazing how he teaches with authority. But the religious leaders are not impressed. They are infuriated. And we're only going to see that grow more and more throughout the rest of the gospel. Matter of fact, this is almost a pivotal point here in chapter 7 where the animosity and the anger and the vitriol begins to grow and grow and grow. Now, in the first century, teachers would always refer to rabbis of the past to solidify their teaching. In other words, it would be like what we do up here whenever we teach, and then we'll say, one commentator says this. One commentator put it this way. We say, C.H. Spurgeon said this. Um, John Calvin said this. John Wesley says this. We would refer to people who are kind of fathers of the faith, fathers of the church, that um, have said these very significant things because they have... Um, invested in the legacy of the church. Uh, God did great things through them. And so they had great insight. And maybe that insight was what people have built on from that time forward. So we will always go back and reference it. Well, that wasn't any different for the Jewish people. Whenever a rabbi would teach, he would always go back and refer to other rabbis. He would talk about their writings or he would talk about their oral traditions, their teachings that they had. And so they would always do that because that was the way you showed that you had learned. This is much like, I don't know how many of you have done academic um, training in a sense of you've, you've pursued degrees beyond just high school and college, but then you get into master's and then even to doctoral, PhD work. And the further you get into it, um, more and more they demand that when you write those papers, even those 15 page papers, the professors will tell you, we don't want your opinion. Okay? We don't care what you think. We want you to demonstrate to us that you've read the difficult things and that you have gone and researched all the best writings and the best research that's out there, and you've pulled those things together, and you demonstrate that you can interact with those teachings. But they'll tell you over and over, we don't want your opinion. And if you put your opinion in there, you're going to be marked off for it. Because when you are learning, you're not the expert. They are. 
But the goal is by the time you get through your PhD, now you are an expert and now you're the writer that some little young person who's making a fool of themselves by spending way too much money to get a degree that's worthless will quote you in their papers, right? And so that's the way the whole thing works. Well, that's the way it's worked with the Jewish people as well. Here's what's fascinating. When Jesus teaches, and we have so many of his teachings in scripture, when he teaches, never does he ever reference another rabbi. He never goes back and says, Hillel says this, or whoever it may be says this. Why? Jesus keeps going back to the scripture. He lets scripture interpret scripture. And so he'll say, Moses said to you this. Here's my opinion of what Moses was talking about. He'll go back and reference the prophets, but he never quotes another rabbi. This is what's blowing their minds. They're like, how did he get this? Where is he getting this from? Has he been listening? Because again, in his day and time, they didn't have Logos Bible software. They didn't have libraries, theological libraries that you could go to. You didn't have a choice of going to seminary. You were either chosen to follow a rabbi or you weren't chosen. And that's it. I mean, the best education you're going to get beyond that is whatever your mothers or your fathers teach you. And if your mothers and fathers are having you and they're not Pharisees and Sadducees, they're not the best of the best. They don't have that scholarly information. So they're sitting there wondering, where did this guy who did not come up through the educational system, where is he getting this wisdom from? How does he know these things? How is he making these connections? This is someone who is learned. This is someone who has studied, and yet we know this guy has not studied. Where is he getting that from? This was, this was kind of the system. One commentator even kind of frames it this way. He says, if a person had not studied under a learned rabbi, his teaching was suspect. His teaching was just his own. In other words, what they were saying was, this guy's probably listened to a whole bunch of people teach, and he's pulled together a whole bunch of their stuff, and he's added his own stuff to it, and he keeps teaching it as if he's come up with something new. But in reality, all he's done is kind of copy and pasted from a whole bunch of sources to create something new. And so they would always be suspect of someone who was not referencing these other rabbis. Now, it's very interesting that we know this is exactly what they were thinking of Jesus, because look at what he says in verse 16. <clears throat> So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not, what does it say? It's not mine. It's not my own. But his who sent me. This is amazing. because Now Jesus is talking about something completely different. Because in their mindset, the academic system was this. You go and you learn, and you learn from your rabbi, and your rabbi teaches you all these other things that all these other rabbis have said through the years. You learn all the Jewish wisdom literature and and from the Talmud and all these different sources, right? And you, you've pulled that into your mind. But yet Jesus says, all I'm relaying to you is what's been relayed to me, and I'm bringing it to you. So I'm representing the one who sent me. So Jesus changes it from this guy who's gone through this academic system almost to a picture of a political ambassador. So the United States have ambassadors throughout the countries of the world. And our president has put them in those different places. And those ambassadors are representatives of the administration of the president of the United States. They are not there to conduct their own picture of foreign policy. They are there to conduct whatever the president of the United States says the foreign policy is. And if they don't do it right, he will yank them out of that post because they serve at the convenience of the president. Okay? Jesus is basically saying, I am like an ambassador. All I'm doing 
is relaying to you what the one who sent me to come has told me to tell you. I'm teaching from the perspective of the one who has sent me. So Jesus, even though he's God himself and fully within his right to teach from his own authority, isn't it interesting that he doesn't claim his own authority here? Instead, he said that he's not teaching by his own authority, but rather he's teaching from the authority of the one who sent him, the Father, God himself. And this is so typical of the character of Christ. The brothers want him to go up and show your power and demonstrate to everyone. And yet Jesus over and over again says, it's not about me getting the glory. I am a servant here and I've been sent to represent the one who sent me. I'm not here to do your bidding. I'm here to do his. And Jesus was very clear on that. He understood that clearly. It's almost like the brothers went to this feast with selfish ambition. They wanted to get something out. They wanted to see something demonstrated. And Jesus goes into it without selfish ambition. He goes to just completely be dependent on the Spirit, and when the Spirit leads, he follows how the Spirit leads him. And I think it's interesting you can think about it this way. The brothers wanted Jesus, or his family, let's put it that way, his family wanted Jesus to demonstrate his power But Jesus emptied himself of his power to embrace a bigger family. Paul picks up on this, and he says that Jesus, even though he was equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But what he did was he made of himself nothing. He took on the form of a servant, and he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So in other words, even though Christ was fully God and could have embraced his godness, instead, he set that aside to take on the form of a servant, to take on the form of an ambassador, to say, I am here to show you what it looks like when you have a right relationship with the Father and you live it out as a representation and a reflection of who he is. And so over and over again, we see him not jump to the limelight and embrace it, but actually move away from it. Look how it continues in verse 17. And 17 really is the crucial, it's the crux of this whole passage that we're looking at today. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. So right there is a powder keg of theology. I want you to listen to it again. Look at it in your text. If anyone's will, so if it's your will, is to do God's will, so your only ambition, your your passion in life is to do what God's called you to do, you will know whether the teaching is from God or whether someone is speaking in their own authority. So the logic here is somewhat simplistic, and at the same time, it's, it's very intricate. The argument Jesus gives here is is actually very fascinating. He doesn't say that people will know that what he teaches is true just because they go and verify the content. In other words, they don't take what he said and go and check it by other sources or anything. He doesn't say that. He actually goes to a completely unexpected perspective. He says that if they choose to do God's will, if you choose to do God's will, then you will see 
that is teaching us from God. Now, I want you to see how profound this truth is. I don't want you to miss this because you will never, ever, ever believe in Jesus because you finally have enough facts to believe in him. The lost people of your family, the people that you work with or go to school with, they're not ever going to believe in Jesus when you finally give them enough evidence to believe in Jesus. That's what this passage says. You first have to believe in him, and then in believing in him, the revelation of who he is comes to you. Do you see that? Look at that again right there. I mean, literally, he's saying that it's when you desire the will of God that the knowledge comes to you or the revelation of who he is and the, the veracity of his teaching. It's not the veracity of his teaching that then leads you to the will of God or for the desire of that. And we think the exact opposite of that. So Jesus says if they choose to do God's will, they will then understand what Jesus is teaching is actually coming from heaven itself or coming from God himself. Augustine says it this way. I'm going to be a good Jewish rabbi and quote people from the past, right? Look at what Augustine says right here. Therefore, he's talking about this same passage, right? Therefore, seek not to understand so that you may believe, but believe so that you may understand. For unless you believe, you will not understand. Augustine, just in a nutshell, kind of pegs where this passage is founded. It's not that you finally have enough information that you go, okay, I think I got enough to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. No, it doesn't happen that way. You believe, and then that belief then gives the veracity for the truth. The understanding comes after you believe, not before. And that's important to understand because as this passage develops, this helps us to understand how salvation happens. Another author puts it this way. He says, true faith is not the product of biblical or rational argument. It is the first step and understanding and accepting such arguments. Now, that's profound what he just said right there. Don't miss that. Because what he's saying is, we tend to think that it's the rational arguments that solidify our faith. He says, but that's not the way it happens. It's your faith that allows you to understand the rational argument. Because Scripture actually tells us what's rational to us isn't rational to the rest of the world. Why? Because you have to have faith before it's rational. You have to believe. You have to be in the family of God before these things begin to make sense. So recognizing the truth of Jesus' teaching does not depend on our mental abilities or our mental faculties, our ability to reason or deduce. It should also never be thought of as, as some type of reward that we get for doing things. Faith is something that is the grace of God. It's extended to us, and it's the very beginning of what God is doing. It is solely focused on a person's openness and acceptance to do the will of God. That's what this passage is teaching us. It doesn't come from any formal learning. It comes from faith and faith alone, which is exactly what Jesus has been teaching throughout his entire ministry. And in fact, it's what the scripture teaches us from the very beginning. Because in this passage, he talks about circumcision. And he's going to say, well, circumcision, y'all use circumcision, and you will even do a circumcision of a child because it has to be done on the eighth day. And if that eighth day falls on the Sabbath day, then you will do it on the Sabbath day. Why? 
Because that law supersedes the law of the Sabbath. Why? Because circumcision came before the law. But what came before circumcision? You got the answer. What is it? Faith. Before there was any circumcision, before there was ever the law, before there was a nation of Israel, the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He didn't do anything. He just said, did Abraham fully even believe or know what God was talking about? No, it was evidenced by the way he lived it out. Well, maybe God needs a little bit of help here. No, God doesn't need any help. We've created a whole bunch of problems here. And so he thinks it's all about him, his, his tribe, his clan. But the truth is, as he grew in his understanding of God, he was growing in his faith, but his faith is what started it. It wasn't his faith that finished it. His faith began his journey Faith was not the climax of his journey. It wasn't like he was struggling through all these things and wondering, and finally at the end of his life he had faith. Faith is what initiated it and allowed him to see and understand eventually what God was doing. In other words, faith becomes the connection between us and God where we begin to understand what it is he wants us to do, why we were created, and all of a sudden Scripture becomes alive to us because we have this relationship with God and the Spirit reveals that truth to us. Outside of that Spirit, we can't understand it. So let's get back, let's back up for just a moment. Let's look at this passage in the context of the whole of the Gospel of John. What's the whole reason that John writes? I mean, you're, you're going to have this down, you know, in six years when we finish the whole Gospel of John. Because you're going to be asked this so many times. So it's not going to take six years, I promise. What, what is the reason that John writes the Gospel? It's so that you may believe. Yeah, he says that right there at the very end. I write these things so that you may believe. Okay? So I think it's very important to understand because what it means is that John is not writing these things so that you may be convinced of sound arguments. John is not writing these things so that you are moved by emotional stories that he tells you about Jesus' ministry. No, his point is that you would believe because only after believing will you ever understand what he's telling you. See, we all have to come to the place where we really want God's will. And what I mean by wanting God's will is we have to get to this place where we want God's will no matter what it costs us, no matter what suffering may be attached to it, no matter if it causes us to be marginalized, no matter what sacrifice may come along with it. If you get to that position, if you get to that perspective of longing for God's will, then what Jesus is saying here will be so refreshing. Because he says, when you get to that point, you will know deep within yourself that he and all the things that he taught during his ministry are from God. So let's look at how he continues this here in verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. <clears throat> so the comment by Jesus is obviously set against the comments from his brothers to go up and to show himself there at the feast. 
display your power so that everyone can see it. You see, when we're seeking our own glory, oftentimes we cannot be trusted. We cannot be trusted with the resources that we have. We can't be trusted with our money. We can't be trusted with our talents. We can't be trusted with our relationships. Why? Because what happens is, since arrogance is at the root of that, we will embellish stories. We will stretch the truth. We will add falsehoods to the story, all <clears throat> to booster our standing in the eyes of others. However, if we are only seeking the glory of the one who sent us, in other words, we are that representative or that ambassador, then our sole responsibility is to relay the information that has been given to us to relay. It doesn't matter how anybody responds. It doesn't matter what they do to us. All that matters is that I'm relaying the information. Why? Because I live for the audience of one. I'm being faithful to one person. I only care what one person thinks. And I'm in this relationship, understanding and growing in my knowledge of who he is as my God and understanding who I am in relation to him. And therefore, it frees me up from all the complexities of life of trying to impress people and keep people happy and, and trying to maintain relationships because somehow I find my worth and my value in those things. No, I can set that aside and live for God's will in my life. You see, if we're seeking only the glory of the one who sent us, it makes our lives easier. And here's the other thing. The credibility of what we say doesn't lie with us. It lies with the one who sent us. Again, go back to that ambassador analogy. You know, what makes the ambassador to whatever country you want to pick? He has no veracity of his own. He has no truth of his own. The truth or the validity of what he says falls with the president of the United States. The president is the one who's going to back up whatever promises he conveys. The president's the one who's going to back up whatever treaties he may offer through his representative. Okay? Same with us. We don't have to worry about being the smartest. We don't have to worry about knowing every answer to everything. Why? Because we are just here to do what God's will is in our life, however that may unfold for us. It doesn't mean we're not diligent in, in studying. It means we're studying for the right reason. <clears throat> and what it is is we are studying because we want to know God, not because we want to know things about God. You see the difference in those? See, a lot of times we go to Bible studies or we'll get a degree or something like that because we want to know things about God, about Scripture. But we have to get to the point that our study is not to enrich our knowledge, but to enrich our relationship with God because we want to know Him more intimately. We want to know more about Him, and we want to know why we were created and what His purpose and His plan is for us. And, and don't miss this. There is a picture of our own salvation right here. Okay, again, you see in this passage right here in John chapter 7 that Jesus is saying that you're not recognizing me because God's will is not at the forefront of, of what you want. But if God's will was at the forefront, you would understand who I am and you would understand the truth of my teachings. Now watch where this goes. Turn over, because I don't have this on the screen, turn over in your copy of Scripture to chapter 8 of John. Okay? Chapter 8, and you're going to see it's a bit, it'll be a while before we get to it because it's almost towards the end of chapter 8. But look at verse 43 and tell me if this doesn't sound like the same exact thing that Jesus is saying in chapter 7. It's just almost the other side of it. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to, what does it say? Hear my word. You, you can't hear me. 
you are of your father the devil, and your, what's that next word? Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. What does he say they wanted to do here? They want to kill him. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of, what does it say? Whoever is of, read it. God does what? Hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Did you see that? He's saying, hearing the word of God will never change your life unless you believe in God, unless you seek to do the will of God. Because until you seek to do the will of God, the words of God don't, you can't hear him. You cannot hear him. Why? Because your heart is attuned to the father that you had in this world. What is salvation all about? Listen to me. It's about dying to your old self and a resurrection of a new man. So what Jesus is saying is, as long as you're allowing the heartbeat of that old man to continue, you can't hear the words of a new life. It doesn't make sense to this man. But once this man is dead and buried, then God, through his power, resurrects a new being, a new creature, Paul calls it. That new creature can now hear and understand God. The reason oftentimes that we don't understand what God wants is because we are still living by our own passions. See, what happens is we take the word of God, and even though we're close to it and we're reading it, we don't understand it. But what happens is <clears throat> because we're living that old life, our old selfish desires and our passions are interpreting this for us. So what happens is <clears throat> we gravitate to passages like, um, God just wants to give me the desires of my heart. And we hold on to that. Say, yes, amen. God wants to give me... And I got some good desires, uh, this relationship, that car, this education, this level of pay. God wants to give me the desires of my heart. You see, that's your old man interpreting these words, and you're not hearing God. Because God does want to give you the desires of your heart, but he wants to give that new person the desires of their heart, not that old man the desires of his heart, because his desires are evil continually. The new man desires the kingdom of God. God wants to give that man the desires of his heart because he wants to live for the kingdom. He wants to live for what he was created for. But you see, here's the thing. John has laid this out perfectly. What happened in our passage we looked at last week? Those in close proximity to Jesus, his brothers, his family, don't believe in him. And now the very people who hold the word of God, who should have recognized him from the beginning, the two groups of people that you would have said, there's no way they could miss Jesus. The people who have been studying these words and anticipating a Messiah forever, and those who are closest to him, who have witnessed his miracles, and neither one of them saw him or recognized him or believed him. Why? 
What John wants you to know is this. There's not going to be an argument strong enough to convince your old heart. There is not a miracle powerful enough to convince your old heart to believe. You know why? Because it's selfish. And all it wants to do is listen to other selfish people. So what happens is our selfish heart loves people who promote themselves. Why? Because that's all of our sin. And we love to share in the same sin. But when someone starts preaching the word of God and it hits us in the face, we don't like that. Why? Because that's the truth. And Jesus says, I keep telling you the truth and you keep running from it. Why? Because you're running to people that you want to listen to because y'all are still living that old life. And you're being motivated by the desires of your heart, the old heart. So look at verse 19 because he continues in and gives us this, uh, he uses this illustration here. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Now here Jesus brings up the law of Moses as an illustration, and he calls out the religious leaders for what they've been planning in their private areas and private uh, conversations and you know, behind the scenes where they're not talking publicly even to their own disciples or to the crowd. Because obviously the crowd doesn't know about this by their response in this passage right here. So they're talking about all these things back behind the scenes and Jesus knows exactly what they're talking about. But he starts with this question, has not Moses given you the law? Now there is more than what meets the eye here. So if you just read over this, you'll miss the significance. We have to remember that the Pharisees prided themselves on being the procurers and the protectors and the administrators of the law of Moses. In fact, the position of the religious leaders were often referred to as the seat of Moses because they were the ones that were supposed to be teaching the purity of the law of Moses. And if you think about it, this is really an alternate illustration of what we looked at in verse 17. You believe and then you understand and believing carries with it the caveat that you're going to act on that belief. Well, see, they have been given the law, but they don't understand it. They're not acting out of belief. They're still acting out of selfish ambition. So the evidence that Jesus presents to them that this is the situation or the current condition of their heart is that they're trying to kill him outside of what the law of Moses actually allows for you can't kill an innocent man until he's proven guilty. You can only do that with witnesses and a fair trial. They don't do any of that. Matter of fact, by the end of the Gospel of John, the law of Moses is shredded and their selfish ambition is evidenced by their blatant disregard of what it says and the protocol that has to be followed. They are blinded by their own agendas or listen, they're blinded by their passions their evil desires. Now, it's real easy for us to point our fingers at them and go, how did they miss it? And the question is, how do we miss it? How often do we act out of selfish ambition instead of belief? How often do we read the scriptures from the perspective of what we want from God instead of what God wants from us? How often are our prayers filled with manipulation of God instead of prayers that are hearts seeking to understand what the kingdom of God looks like for me and how I can be used in it. See, very easily we do the same thing. Those in close proximity to Jesus didn't believe in him. And those who studied his word and preached it day in and day out missed him. 
And don't be a fool and think that it can't happen to you. Is your faith legitimate? Is it real? Is it something that's just been handed down to you and you're going through the motions of what you were taught as a kid, but that faith has never been real to you? You don't have that relationship with God. Do you study the word of God, but yet it never becomes that thing that directs your life? You never get to the point where you're just looking to it for the counsel and direction, understanding of who you are and what you were created for. Probably the most ironic thing about this is that they had convinced themselves that Jesus needed to die and that by killing Jesus, they were accomplishing the will of God. They probably got that from Deuteronomy chapter 13 that says that if anyone comes along and begins to mislead people with false teachings, that guy needs to be put to death. And so they're thinking, we are actually doing what the law of Moses is calling us to do. But the problem was, it was the law of Moses as their evil hearts saw it, not as it was revealed by God. Look how it continues in verse 20. The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. So the crowd obviously includes people beyond the Jewish religious leaders, and they're unfamiliar with the plot that they've been developing behind the scenes. They think it's crazy to think that anyone would want to kill Jesus. There's been no trial. Why in the world? You're crazy. Apparently, they understood the law of Moses better than the actual religious leaders did because they knew this can't happen without a trial. Verse 21, Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the father's. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So here Jesus gives an illustration from the law of Moses. He goes back to that incident, which is the catalyst of division, experience between those who believe and those who didn't. That was the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. And so he brings up this issue as an illustration, the issue of circumcision. Now, if you um, look at this, look at verse 23, how it continues to develop, and he gives further develops this illustration. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? So he says right there this, okay, you will do circumcision on the Sabbath because circumcision is higher than the Sabbath. It came before. And so he's asking them, so where exactly on your scale of priorities does making someone's whole life whole come? Is it below the law? Is it below circumcision? So circumcision is more important than someone's whole life being restored. Where exactly are your priorities? And show me where what I did violates the law of God. And it doesn't. And then he ends with, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So hearing that Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath, they immediately assumed that Jesus was a Sabbath breaker. Boy, were they wrong on that, right? They needed to learn to make right judgments. Now, here's the thing. This is just as much a problem today as it's ever been. To those who challenge us as Christ followers on the truth of our message, I mean, think about this. Are, are, are we speaking and living the truth or are we only doing it to boost our own status or prestige or wealth? Or are we only doing it to promote the name of our church or what we believe? 
There's some uh, preacher used to say this. I can't remember where I got this from. It is somewhere I heard a preacher say it, and it was really good because it said this. How many of you are preaching the gospel to people around you? You're sharing your faith, sharing it with those that you go to school with, your neighbors. But how many of you, those people that you're sharing the gospel with, they can't hear you because you're living too loud? See what he's talking about? In other words, we say all the right things, but our life doesn't match the things that we say. And so they hear us, but then they really don't hear us because the way that we're living is so loud that they can't hear the words of salvation that we're trying to preach to them because we haven't even embraced them ourselves. See, many times in the history of the church, people have accused preachers and teachers of selfish ambition, and most of the time they have been proved right. We want to build our own kingdoms, build our own churches. One thing that aggravates me, and if you did this, I'm not condemning you. I'll take it up to the leaders above you. But one thing that irritates me is the bumper stickers and the little signs that people put in their yards that say, I love my church. I want to go knock on their door and say, it's not your church. You didn't die for it. And you know what? Your church isn't any more special than anybody else's church. But we want to think that somehow we have a corner market on knowledge, that God loves us more than he loves it because we do things different. That is not true. It's not true. We are not here to build our own kingdoms, not as a church, not as individuals. So often, these illustrations point towards what Jesus is saying without trying to explain every little detail, every little nuance, every little application. You see, if, if we, the church, are really walking and living out that sacrificial love of Jesus, then it's going to become obvious that we're not living for our own glory, but we're living for the glory of God the Father. Who cares if you get credit for something? Who cares if Mars Hill's name is ever used in connection with something that we did? We're not here to build the name of Mark. It's just a dumb name that we assign to a building so that you know where to go and park. That's it, okay? The, the church of Jesus is not called Mars Hill. It is the church, it's the bride of Christ. And when we get over ourselves and we embrace the truth of the gospel, God wants to move in our midst and he wants to do powerful things that we were created for, fashioned for, that will blow our minds. But before we can ever get to that, we have to lose the selfish ambition. Again, verse 17 is the key. If anyone wants to do God's will, they will know whether the teaching of Jesus is from God or whether he's just making it up to, to boost his own position or his own ego. If somebody really intends to do God's will, when they discover it, it's going to become clear to them exactly who Jesus is and what Jesus wants them to do. Think about this. Often people look at Jesus and they draw conclusions about him based on faulty ideas that they have about God, probably fed to them by the world. But the scripture teaches us that people have to learn fresh and new who God is. They have to learn fresh and new what the world is. They have to learn fresh and new who we ourselves are. And how do we learn that? Listen to me, by looking at Jesus and believing. That's how it has to be approached. It's a challenge. 
And, and here's the sobering truth. The challenge to overcome and to embrace that is more difficult inside the church than it is outside the church. I want to end with this. If you love something, you immerse yourself in it. Did you know that? Some of you are Alabama fans, and you stayed up till midnight last night listening to all the things, what happened to Tua and what's going on, and you read the things, and all you know, year long, you're looking at who we might get and who we don't get, and will we ever have a kicker that can kick a field goal? You know, you're looking at all those different types of things because you, you love it. You love it. You live it. You breathe it. You love it. No one has to make you do it. You do it. My question is this. Do you really love Jesus? Do you really love God? Do you really love his kingdom? Or is it a chore? Is it something that you dread? Or is it something you immerse yourself in? See, this is the thing. John orchestrates these things to punch us right between the eyes. He wants us to reflect on these very difficult questions because, listen to me, in answering these difficult questions, life is found. John is saying to his day and time and to us today, aren't you tired of just playing church? Don't you really want to understand what life is? It starts with believing who Jesus is, the Son of God who died for your sins so that you could live. Not live for your kingdom, but to live for something bigger than that, his kingdom so that you can be an ambassador for God, so that you can understand. Let's pray together. Lord, may the heavy word of your scriptures fall on our wayward hearts and our hard heart. And may it break up the fallow ground so that the seeds of life can be planted. Lord, I believe somewhere there's good soil down in there. I pray that the word of your gospel, of your truth, find its way so that life can spring up out of a dead heart so that we can really find what it is that we are called to experience and to live. We ask this in the sovereign name of Jesus. Amen.